What's up, Dialed fam? Welcome to episode 165 of the Dialed Health Podcast. My name is Derek Teal. I'm the owner and head coach here at dialedhealth.com, which is strength training for cyclists. On today's episode, I sit down with John Thornham from Flow Cycling, who is an expert in aerodynamics. And although Flow specializes in producing custom wheel sets, what you're going to love about John is that he doesn't just talk about wheels to make you more aero. He talks about the whole body and the whole bike and all the variables in between. So we're going to get into the nitty gritty about making yourself more aerodynamic with all the questions that I have, both about making my gravel setup more aerodynamic, what I can do with my body to be more aerodynamic, and little things that you almost wouldn't think about, like number placement when you go to actual events, and things like tire width versus internal rim width and rolling resistance and all these variables that make a huge difference that, to be honest, not everybody talks about. And after this conversation, we're going into weekly thoughts. I have to tell you about some very bad luck that I had at an event this weekend, which actually stopped me from starting a race, even though I was kind of just there to ride. We'll get into the details later, but it also involves my recovery from Everest Rome. I want to tell you guys about what the last week has looked like and how I've tried to decide whether or not I'm race ready just two weeks after this 24-hour ride. So we will get into the details of that amongst other announcements I have regarding Dialed Health, the kits, new programs, the thank ride, and all the other exciting stuff that's going on. And a huge thank you to everyone who's listening to the podcast, but I want to give a special thank you to my most recent review on Google. This is from Jennifer McDowell, and she says that she started working with Derek six weeks ago. Today was the first time in forever, seriously talking years, that I was able to do one And she says, I know it doesn't sound like much, but one clean pull-up, no swinging, no kipping, and no assistance from a band or no jumping. For a woman sneaking up on her big 6-0, this is a huge moment. Thanks, Derek, for your coaching, enthusiasm, and encouragement. Keep moving forward. Shout out to you, Jennifer. I really appreciate you leaving that review. And I'm actually going to be asking for some Google reviews from Dialed Fan members soon. But if you could leave one, that'd be incredible. I'm going to have the link in the description. You could also leave a review that's five stars on the platform you're listening to this podcast on. These make a huge difference for helping us find a new audience and really showing the credibility of the podcast itself. So thanks for taking your time to support the podcast that way. Now, without further ado, let's dive into the episode with John Thornham. All right, John, I was on your podcast recently and we had an awesome conversation started talking about aerodynamics on gravel bikes and it really was a was a tease because I wanted to know more and I said can you come on the podcast and tell me how to make my gravel bike more aero and here we are so thanks for coming yeah man happy to be here love it so let's talk about it you are you specialize in creating the fastest wheels out there and you've done so many tests just starting to pick your brain about it a little bit was interesting and then you'd mentioned I mean there's all these other areas uh, besides wheels, even though we are going to talk about wheels themselves, where people can just be faster on the gravel bikes at yep. the gravel races. And so if I were to come to you and I rolled you my crux with like a stock build, what would you do to make this bike more aero? I mean, the first thing I would, I would always say when you're looking at making a bike aero is really, you have to consider what percentage of the aerodynamic drag is produced by what component, right? And if you think about it, the body itself is the biggest drag producer. So if we consider the body is anywhere between 80 to 90% of the total drag, the first thing I would want to do is I would want to figure out what is the best fit for you to make you as aerodynamic as possible. So 
if we, you know, we come from a very heavy tri background. We have a lot of triathletes in our, in our fold, um, moved into gravel and we took all of the experience that we have from gravel over to, or from tri over to gravel. So the first thing I always think about is, is what are we going to do from a fit perspective? So you can do a number of things from a fit perspective. A lot of guys do wind tunnel fits. Um, I, I feel like gravel right now is, is still sort of a little bit archaic when it comes to really adopting and understanding aerodynamics. I'm not saying that's not in there at all, but there's so much room that can be made up from an aerodynamic perspective. Um, not only with, with, with the riders, but also with the, the gear itself. Uh, we can talk about some of the gear here in a bit, but I think the first thing I would have you do is, is make sure you're getting a good fit. Now, good arrow fit sometimes, especially if you're looking at it from a wind tunnel perspective, can mean that you are not really allowing yourself to produce a lot of power. So a good fit, I mean, just like on any bike is you want to be in a good arrow position, but something that you can hold for a long time and also something that you can produce a lot of power with. If you don't, if you're not close to a wind tunnel or anything like that, or that a different budget, you can go to, um, there's a guy out of California, Jim, he's got, um, arrow, which is a velodrome type testing. And today there's also a bunch of new sensors that are on the market that are allowing people to do some sort of arrow testing kind of by yourself. Um, there are these CDA sensors. I know, um, Aerolab has one, uh, the Notio is another one, but I think if you're coming from, or, or you're riding in the gravel scene, um, considering aerodynamics is definitely something that matters. I know that for us, when we, um, we created this algorithm years ago to develop our wheels. And one of the things we did is I built this computer and it mounts to the front of a bicycle. So it collects a bunch of data points every second. And two of those data points, the two main that we look at are going to be the yaw angle. So the angle that the wind hits you. So if it's hitting you straight in your nose, that's zero. And anything to either side of you is like, you know, plus one, plus two, plus three, plus four, or minus. And then the other thing we look at is the relative velocity. So how fast is the wind hitting you, not how fast are you going? Because the relative velocity is really what matters from an aerodynamic perspective. Hmm. So one thing that we noticed, and a lot of people thought that this wasn't true, is that unless you're riding solo, that aerodynamics really doesn't matter all that much. Or if you're going uphill, it doesn't really matter that much, or you know, different like coastal things. The truth is, is that aerodynamics pretty much matters everywhere. Even if you're riding in a group, we've shown that there's a significant benefit to making sure that you're in an aero position. I'm not saying it's not as significant. There is a, there's a change, but making sure you have an aerodynamic, um, fit is, is the, is the number one thing. So that would be the first thing I would tell somebody to do. Um, and then beyond that, we want to look at gear. We want to figure out what you can do from a gear perspective to uh, make yourself faster. Um, some of the non-obvious things that I think most people think about is, you know, wheels, tires, and all that sort of thing. But some of the stuff that's really simple, um, you go to a tri race and you say somebody with a race number on, people like literally pin them to their back and they're like very specific with where they put their race numbers. I've seen guys in like uh, mountain bike races or gravel races and like they literally put their race number like out front like a big flag, right? So simple stuff like that. Obviously, we want to make sure that we're we're getting that, tucking that in, thinking about where your hydration is, like where you're putting your bottles, uh, those sorts of things. I know a lot of guys in certain races are also using like aero bars in in the gravel bike, and some some of those guys get laughed at. But honestly, if you've got a long section that you can get in the bars and you're going to increase that aero position, major benefit. Um, there could be potentially some changes with that coming up though, so we'll we'll see how that plays out. 
And then, you know, one of the major things from a component perspective is wheels. Um, on any bike, really, once you have your fit figured out, the biggest component that you can upgrade from an aerodynamic perspective is going to be your wheels. So in the road world, tri-world, we've developed several generations of wheels. And one thing that we noticed is that if you take like a stock uh, OE wheel that you get and you compare that to wheels that we make, um, there's a, an 11 watts savings difference when you put those wheels on a bike. So 11 watts is like, is a very significant number. So you think about like an average FTP of an athlete, let's say it's, you know, 220, you're out with a group of guys or you're in a race, um, and those guys are holding 220 and you also have a 220 FTP. Well, you're able to gain those 11 Watts over those guys simply because you're changing out wheels, um, on the road bike. So one of the things that we looked at when we were developing a gravel line of wheels was we wanted to understand, you know, what sort of savings can you benefit, um, from an aerodynamic perspective in gravel. Now, most people thought that gravel aerodynamics wasn't possible. And the big reason for that is because when you look at the tire, right, the way that the air hits the tire, it's got a crazy tread pattern. It's much wider and people just believe that it wasn't possible. So what we noticed was we use this algorithm. So I said earlier, we collected all this data. Um, from that data, we, we developed this algorithm that looks at two things. It looks at the drag component that the, how aerodynamic a wheel is when it's in a, in the uh, software I'll talk about in a second. And then we also look at something called the yaw torque. So basically if you get hit with a crosswind and you get any sort of gusts, how much does the wheel twist in your hand? So what's really important for us is we want to make sure that the wheel is aerodynamic, but it's also stable because if it's unstable, like who wants to ride it? It makes no sense, mm. right? Especially in the road and tri world. If you're in the, like the bars or you're down, even on gravel, if you're down on bars and you have to come out of the bars because you can't handle the wheel because it's rough to ride, then you're losing all of that aerodynamic benefit, which we already talked about because you want your body to be as aero as possible. So most people thought that it wasn't possible. Um, but what we did is we, with that data, we developed this algorithm and that algorithm is used in, in a software called computational fluid dynamics. So it's basically a wind tunnel on a computer. And then what we do is we give the computer, uh, a simulated model and we also give it a tire. So we scan tires in like 3d. So they're very, very detailed tires. And then we have, uh, a, basically a, a parameter set that we give it. So we say you can make a, a rim of, of a certain depth of a certain width. And then this, this software, what it does is it iterates over hundreds and hundreds of rim shapes solving for what is basically fast. So if you look at most wheels and I've, I've had this sort of discussion many times around, uh, gravel aerodynamics, people said that there's like aero gravel wheels that are out there, but the truth is until you get into a deeper rim, something that's like 55 plus, most of the aerodynamics is not, you're not getting the aerodynamic benefit out of a gravel wheel because of the large tire. So when you look at wheel aerodynamics, what matters is you want the air to basically, it's called reattached. Um, so as the air moves around the, the actual tire, you want the air to basically move along the surface of the rim. But if you're, if it's too shallow, because you have such a big and knobby tire, that air does not reconnect. And so it makes it, it there's a, there's a loss of aerodynamics there. However, mm. if you can get the rim to be deep enough and you can shape the rim properly, you can get a connection on the backside, which basically allows you to produce that aerodynamics. Now that's a very like complicated, uh, thing, which 
you know, I can, if, you, if anyone wants to learn about this, I've written about this on our blog, like a ton about reattachment and attachment, but the, that's the basic principle. And what we found was that even on a gravel bike, um, we, even with gravel tires, the 11 Watts that we saw on the road is identical to the same 11 Watts that you see in gravel. So for people that believe that there's not really a benefit, the benefit is as great on the road as it is on gravel, considering you have the right gear and the right tires, um, and the right wheel. So that alone, like I've looked at the unbound 200, the last couple of years, the winners that are in that race, and none of them are utilizing like this deep sort of concept. Um, it still blows me away. It still baffles me that that's not out there. I've been to Kona many, many times, which is the world championship for Ironman. And every year I go, I kind of like make a point to go look at the pro bikes just to see what they're doing. And in that sport, every single mechanical advantage that you can get, you will see on the winner's bike. I'm talking like oversized pulley wheels, dope chains, ceramic speed bearings, um, wheels, tire selection. Um, I mean, just tire selection selection alone in, in, in the road can, can lose you eight minutes over an Ironman, right? So there's these minor, minor things that people don't really consider. And if you, if you add them all up, um, you know, that's why, you know, I have podcasts, podcasts that we, that we have you on. It's about optimizing yourself to these small little advantages that just make huge gains over time. So it's a very long answer to your, to your first question, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll let you go from there. There's so much to talk about after that. I feel like you just opened Pandora's <laughs> box. Did yeah. you just say doped chains? Doped chains. Yeah. So dope what, chains what do you mean by like, that? So if you look at like traditional chains, um, you use like a, a grease, an oil or some sort of oil. Um, those are basically known to be like horrific from a, from a, uh, like an efficiency perspective. So if you think about a chain that goes around, uh, you have your, your main gear up front, right? You've got the, the gear in the back and then you go through two pulley wheels. And so there's one two, three, four, five, six. There's 12 points of, of each revolution that each link has to move 12 times to go through that, that spot. So in like a minute, it's like, it's something ridiculous. It's like tens or hundreds of thousands of basically movements on a chain throughout the pedal stroke. So most people, especially even when you get to the gra gravel, like it's even more important because there's a lot of dirt that's, that's around. So you can lose like easily 10, 12 Watts with a, a poor chain. So the, the best thing you can do from a, from a drive training perspective is to actually use products like, um, certain waxes. Um, some of them basically repel dust. And so if you're going into a race situation, you have like a doped chain, like ceramic speed does it. I know there's other companies out there that also have, uh, you can, they're like hot waxes. A lot of guys use like, um, crock pots. They basically dunk them yeah. in wax. And they're good for like a certain amount of time, but that's I am dope familiar chain. with the wax chain. I've actually tried them, uh, and they're they're really sick. And they are that they is are. something I've seen more common. I think in gravel, uh, yep. and even guys in mountain biking are using it. Uh, like I, I know a lot of guys use the Ice Friction brand, and they'll kind of rotate through these chains that are pre-waxed and everything. Uh, but I have yep. never heard that term "doped." That's pretty funny. Yeah, no, dope chains for sure. And and there's also like some really good like, um basically oils, right? So 
you you can use the, the the wax chains and they're great. And then there's some also like some other stuff that's like not standard oil, like traditional oil that just has like a life, like a life, uh, a lifespan that is just much greater. And even as the friction occurs, you are greatly reducing the friction between the wear on the chain is different. So like in a race situation, especially like if you're competitive, if you're not preparing your drive chain train, like it's, it's a big deal. And this is exactly why when you look at the oversized pulley wheel thing, like what people look at them, especially in trial, like, so if people don't know what the pulley wheels are, like back in your rear derailleur, there's two, there's two basically gears that basically allow the chain to move through. The reason they're there, like, is because as you shift, you have to change the length of the chain and you have to move the derailleur in and out. And basically it allows the chain to stay like the right length for whatever gear that you're in. So oversized pulley wheels means that uh, ceramic speed, I believe is one of the beginners, uh, in making these, but there are these big giant wheels that are on the back. And the reason for that is because as the chain moves through there, it reduces the, the amount of flex in the chain. So it's, it's much smaller. And so you're reducing the amount of friction and the, the amount of like flex in that chain. So you're, you're bringing down the number of oscillations in the chain or the amount of oscillation in the, in the chain links. And so it reduces the drag in the chain, the friction in the chain. So dude, I, I've never thought about that pole on the chain and all those oscillations you're talking about, essentially of the chain being under torque versus not. And that slight yeah. movement of in and out is something I've never considered. And I actually didn't know that about the oversized pulley wheels, that that was the point. In my head, I was like, oh, that's ceramic bearings and it just like spins faster. Yeah. But it also is that oscillation. That's crazy. It is. And the thing that I like, I try to say, over and over again, like one of the most important things that I, I wish I would have connected years and years ago when I first started this business was you have to think about the whole bike and the human as a mechanical system, right? So the ideal machine is a hundred percent efficient. So if I put a watt in, I get a watt out, right? If I burn wood to like heat my house, well, there's a, there's an inefficiency there. There's like, it's a, you lose a certain amount of energy to light and other things that are, that don't, don't actually produce the heat. A bike is no different. So you, the human are the input source. Let's say that you're putting 250 Watts into your bicycle. Ideally you want 250 Watts out of the bike to move you forward. Right. But how do you, how do you measure that standard of perfection though? Because it's like, have we even reached a point that we could say this is what hundred percent efficient looks like? No and, machine and in the world. No machine in the world is 100 percent efficient. It doesn't exist, right? Okay. You're you're always trying to get to. I mean, as a, as a mechanical engineer, right? You're you're <laughs> always designing towards maximum efficiency. Dude, this is but, like the surfer who is just waiting for the perfect wave. Exactly, you know what I'm talking right? about? Yeah, exactly. They're, just, they're staying in the game because they <laughs> think that there is a perfect wave out there. They have not ridden, yep. and that's what this reminds me of right now. It's it's actually it's it. I, it's romantic. I like that. And it's actually, yeah. it's a, it's very exciting to think about this like never ending chase kind of a thing. So, um, that's, that's interesting. So, so the goal is right. So I'm putting 250 Watts in ideally, I want as many of those Watts moving me forward as possible, yeah. right? Because 250 Watts output is going to make me a certain speed right now. If I have a bike that is, let's say I'm losing 20% of my efficiency out of that bike because I don't have a dope chain. I don't have good wheels. My tire pressures are off. My, my fit is horrible. You know, those are all mechanical losses. 
I'm immediately down to 200 watts of output. If my if the guy riding beside me is smart about all of his gear, smart about his fit, smart about his tire pressure, and he's losing 8%, right? Well, he's got 20... I should have made the math easier on myself. He's got 30 watts <laughs> advantage, you know, roughly 30 watts advantage to me, right? Just because he took care of his gear. So I always try to get across to people that if you think about it like a, a machine and you look at each piece of gear on yourself, how can I preserve as many watts out of me that are going to move me forward, not wasted through like heat or light or any other sort of energy that I'm going to lose? It's the most important thing. What I love about how you've even started this conversation is that you are really looking at the entire package. It's so hard to get someone to not be narrowly focused on the wheels or yeah. on the fit or this or that. So the fact that you look at that as a full circle view, I think it gives a lot of credibility to even the product that you're making. And it makes me wonder about these little tidbits of efficiency. So for one, I think of aero socks. Uh, would yeah. this be something that is like a mandatory item that somebody should be having on? Because it seems like from some wind tunnel YouTube videos I've seen, those yeah. have almost made more difference than uh, maybe a helmet even. Yep. So I think I always say this. I mean, I've had, I, I worked on a, with a guy recently that just broke a world record for the most miles ridden in seven days. It's unbelievable what this guy did. It's like over 2,300 miles. And we really like focused on so many small, minute things to make them as fast as possible. Um, and then I've worked with guys that are like in their eighties that are trying to qualify for Kona. And you know, you're, you're working with a very different person. Um, I've had other people that I've talked to that they tell me what their goal is. Their goal is to have fun. And I'm like, well then don't worry about the socks. Are you warm? <laughs> are your feet comfortable? Like I yeah. think it comes down to like what matters. Um, if your goal is to be fast, even if it's to break your own personal best, or you're trying to qualify for something, maybe it's unbound or, or maybe it's some specific race that you're trying to qualify for, then yes, I think everything that you do matters. Socks make a difference. Shoe covers make a difference. Every little advantage that you can give yourself, I think, I think is like brutally important when it comes to this, because you're giving yourself an advantage that the guy next to you doesn't know. I've always said the fastest athletes are also the smartest athletes. Never fails. It's a great quote. So then it makes me think of the number plates that you mentioned. Now my pushback on the, the number plate, and I don't, this is funny though, because now that I think of it, I'm like, not everyone's following the rules, but when you do your rider pickup, your packet, yep. all that, it says, do not fold this around your head tube. I, we need to be able to clearly see the number, yada, yada, yada. And it always says that with athlete registrations. And so not everyone follows it and you will see pros wrap it around their head tube. And I might have to be that guy breaking the rules next year because it's like, now that I think about it, I almost feel stupid for not. And yeah. so are, are you aware of that? The suggestion by most race promoters that they don't want you to do that? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I don't, man, it's just so difficult, right? Because like, yeah, when you look at it, it's like literally like taking a sheet of plywood and like sticking it up front, like, Oh yeah. Horrible. I mean, one thing you can do is like, if you take like a hole punch, right, uh -huh. right, what you need to be, they need to see is your number. If somebody's really going to be like a stickler around like, you know, where it is or how it's mounted, take like a hole punch and mm -hmm. like punch a, just a ton of holes all in it. Ooh, that's a tip. It's still legible, right? But what you're doing is you're making like 
think of like I always used to, like they think of like aerodynamics from like a water perspective. If you have like a if you had like a sheet of plywood underwater and you're trying to move that back and forth, it's like so difficult, you know. Mm. But if you take the same thing and you cut like a bunch of holes in it and you try to move it through, the water can move through there. So air is no different, right? So what I would do is I would just like that's rip a, a number great of holes analogy. You know? hey, that's a good one, dude. You're hitting these out of the park. That's a yeah, really yeah, yeah. everybody knows what that kind of thing feels like. So I, I think I will potentially be a rule breaker. If not, I'm bringing a hole punch. Yep. Uh, and then where would I put my number on my kit? So this is another thing I've noticed is that you go to major gravel events. It says put the number on your jersey. And honestly, a lot of riders don't. And I don't know if it's strategic and they're like, hey, I'm not putting that on my jersey because it's more flat. I know I've had problems putting it on my jersey and then having some interference with pockets or it comes loose and now it's dangling and flapping. So I have had weird scenarios with that as well. What If I were to have to put a number on my kit, where do you recommend putting it to be the if, most aero? If you were going to be in any sort of like aero position, let's say you have a clip on bars or anything like that, I would definitely keep it off your back. You know, if I'm going to put it somewhere on my back, it would be as low and as close to the seat as possible saddle. Like you want to get it down low, right? So you think about how the airflow is going to move, right? So it's going to hit your head. It's going to come up over your head and then it's going to move over the shape of your back and it's going to come down. Now, eventually it's going to detach and sort of become turbulent behind you. That laminar air will come off your back. But if you do that, if you put your number like way, way down by your butt, then what happens is by the time it's coming off, it's really kind of out of the wind like if you're riding you, oh, just yeah. stick your, you just stick your hand down by your butt like you're not going to really feel any airflow if you're like in somewhat of an arrow position and you like tuck your hand up like behind your back you'll feel the air right over your back you know you can just feel it moving over there so you want to keep that clean if you have to put it on the front then what i would do is i would also put it as low as possible mm. there's like some really interesting studies that people have done will like have jerseys open or closed or zipped or not zipped. Um, and really what it comes down to is it comes down to the, the human, like what is your shape? You know, mm -hmm. some guys are like really barrel chested. There was actually this really cool study that I, I recently read about that uh, there was a woman, she was a professional and she went into the tunnel for something while she was pregnant. And she was faster pregnant than not pregnant. And like her <laughs> stomach. Get out of here. Yeah, it's crazy. Like the way the stomach comes out and the way that it moves. And like there's been this like in try, you'll see a couple guys doing these things now. They're called like chest fairing. So they'll take like a water bottle and they stuff it in. And this really like resembles like a pregnant woman in, in some capacity. But this sort of like bulbous thing up front, as you're, especially as you're down in that position, is the air is moving differently around that shape than it is to like catch it in like a like almost like a catcher's mitt where your chest is because you mm -hmm. have that that like that position so i would keep the number away from there and i would keep it low almost like down like belly button area so like it's down so if you like sit up for any reason somebody can read it but definitely keep it out of like airflow area for sure that's really good to know and i've also seen athletes like lionel sanders using the uh bladders for hydration yeah. and that's all outlawed now it was smart. Oh, that's already outlawed. It's banned now. Yeah, some guys were using that must Camelbacks. Have just yeah, I think it was like a couple last year, a couple years ago. So they were people. What they were doing was really smart. They were taking like Camelbacks and they were wearing them backwards, and so they were using it as hydration, right? 
but it was uh, also this like camelback thing that was given this like this chest furry and it was i mean it's it's pretty okay so i actually haven't seen the backpack on backwards i've just seen them stuff the bladder in their kit so they oh, take the yeah. bladder out and i want to say he was doing that this year maybe it was in like a pto or something that isn't a yeah. sanction or something but it looked really interesting and it makes sense because it's like for one you don't have to get out of arrow position for your bottle and for two you also get that arrow advantage um that yep. you mentioned that with the water bottle so uh that that is really interesting and i've mm-hmm. been told that you get it, it's kind of uncomfortable and there's like a lot of weird sweat that comes along with it in your chest yep. but then again if the temps are right i mean and you have that advantage that would be pretty huge yeah for sure well you got to think too right so if you freeze the water in the bladder, it's actually acting as a is a something to cool you. So like, oh man, yeah, that's true. Right? So, that could be like another advantage. There, I mean, there's major advantages. I've actually I've looked pretty heavily into the, like this chest fairing idea, and like I've always like I've kind of wanted to make one that you would basic you can use it like from a from a, a cooling perspective. I mean, just like your hands and your feet and like forearm area and your chest, like to to bring cooling down your body like by a degree or something like that is like, I mean, the, the benefits you get are ridiculous. So anything you can do from a cooling perspective and what happens is you, as you're putting out these Watts throughout your race, right? You're basically like a little thermos, you're a little heater. Mm-hmm. And so what you're doing is you're melting that water. So as the, as the water melts, as the, as the mass, as the, the fluid changes from not fluid, but as the frozen water turns, goes to the state change, it's pulling heat out of your body, right? So heat only moves it transfers. There's really no such thing as cold. Cold is an absence of heat. That's all it is, right? So hmm. you have this amount of energy that creates this temperature. And so what it does is the heat in your body transfers, moves into the colder su- substance. And in that process, it cools your body. That's what happens. Dude, <laughs> this is like already got my brain kind of twisting and turning on so many different <laughs> like ideas. And I wanted to actually, so give a couple comments, like, you know, the podcast listeners know, I like to ask you these questions. Like we're sitting down at a bar, having a drink yeah, yeah. and I got to make my, my points here and there. So, uh, the gravel arrow bars thing, um, yeah. there's a oh, shoot, there's a couple things I want to say. Okay. Let me start with this. I think the reason that gravel has been late to the take on aerodynamics is because of an identity crisis within the sport. It's like it came around and seriously. And I've seen this in mountain biking and that's why I'm bringing it up is because it's come around as this adventure, not necessarily fast riding style. It's like, get off the road, go adventure, bike pack, go slow, bring bags, have a beer. It's become almost like the mountain bike bro version of like road. And yep. then when the races started, I think there was a lot of that energy initially where people were like, Hey, like, let's go do this adventure. And you know, it's time and we'll go fast and we'll go hard. Like we'd like to do, but we're still out there not concerned about this stuff. Right. We're going to wear mm-hmm. a t-shirt because we're just growing out. We're going to wear, uh, wear a Hawaiian shirt or whatever. So, or flannel, you know, it's all those things. And so then you have the competitive side of the sport come in and it's like disrupting all that. And so I think there's that identity crisis there where it's now become so professional and fast that this is a huge difference. And, and I guess that's my explanation to why I think it's been a slow start to bringing this oh, into the sport. I, I've said for years, I mean, I'm with you 100%. There's like, if you go back like 10 years ago when like gravel was like kind of 
in its infancy. And I mean, it was, it wasn't unbound. It was, uh, the dirty Kanza. And you look at some of yep. those like original bikes that were there. They were literally like Franken bikes. Like guys were like either taking, like you'd get like 26ers that were like, you know, <laughs> hardtails, and they had like some suspension, but they had different stuff. Then you had like 29er guys. And then you had like sort of like the road guys that were coming in. It was just this like wild west of like bikes and what's going to win. It's really only, I would say in the last seven, six, seven years. I mean, open was one of the big ones that, that first came out. Um, and then, you know, three T they were doing some stuff pretty early as far as like a gravel specific bike. I remember the interbike I was at, I went over and it, I think it was, uh, anyway, I talked to the, the guy who designed the open bike and he was explaining it to me. He was just showing it to me. And, and I was like, man, this is really clever, right? You know, the two different wheel sizes on the same bike and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, man, that's, that's an interesting thing. But gravel was like, so in its infancy, but I think now we're, we're getting into this and it's like anything, any new movement starts with like a lot of like the original, like sort of like cowboys, you mm -hmm. know? but then you get, <laughs> then money starts to come in and then people start to transition in. And then eventually the intelligence of the, of the community becomes greater. And all these like hacks that keep coming in to make people faster. I, eventually it's going to, it'll take over. You'll have like the fastest, you'll see drastic time changes in gravel. I think I would predict in the next five to 10 years. It will be interesting to see, especially with the Americans going over to gravel, the gravel world champs this weekend. Yep. Uh, it seems like even the European racers are pretty excited about that because it's almost yeah. like connecting these scenes. And it also shows the credibility of America and like in particular Keegan Swenson and everything he's done over here. So I, I totally agree with what you're saying on that. And I was going to bring up too uh, the next point I wanted to make before we talk aero bars. Did you see that uh, there's a athlete in the u.s chase work and really nice dude i just met him um he got second at the gravel i'm doing air quotes gravel worlds because obviously it's different than the world championships but it happened yeah. in nebraska like a month ago but he did yeah. a full deep dish wheel did you see that i did not see that yeah like, like a full disc person, full disc first person i've seen do it in gravel race i can i'll send you the info so here's, here's one thing that I do have to say, and, and I've noticed this because we've looked at this like pretty extensively. There's something that when you got to think about gravel, especially like if you look at Unbound this year, a, a buddy of mine did, he kept sending me pictures throughout the day. The <laughs> mud there was insane. Like, I was there. Crazy. <laughs> Were you there? I mean, the mud yeah, was, did was <laughs> off the charts, right? So, you know, at some point you have to sit there and say like, okay, there's like a ton of mud. If you had a full disc wheel at that race and that thing became covered in mud, you're basically mm. carrying around an anchor, right? That's an interesting and, point. Yeah. So again, it really, like, there's so much that I say, like, I always think of wheel selection, regardless of what discipline you're in or what sport you're in, sport you're in is, is really kind of specific to the sport. And coming from like a road tri background, you get these 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 mindsets around picking wheels and really what it comes down to is it comes down to what is the deepest wheel you can handle and by handle means stay in a comfortable position you're not freaked out by the wind because if for any reason you're like anxious about the wheel that you're on because you feel like it's too deep then what happens is psychologically you're just like worried about it you're like ruminating about this wheel the whole time your heart rate goes yeah. up you're screwing yourself over for your race you, you want your gear to be like a non-issue mm. when you go to gravel Wheel selection really isn't about the wheel that you can handle from a depth perspective, because once you get like, we have an arrow, like the arrow gravel wheel that we make, like nobody's going to have a handling issue with that. What it comes down to is, 
can you handle the bike in the terrain efficiently? Right. Mm -hmm. So, and this is one of the big things that I think you see from this, this sort of merge of like the road world and the, the mountain bike world, you put some of these mountain bike guys on a gravel bike and they can go through like crazy sections or like corners on gravel bikes. And they just walk away from like road guys that go around the corners and they're like, they don't know how to handle the bike. And they're like skidding out. There's, there's, there's issues there because the bike handling skills aren't there. So when you think about wheels, especially if you get into like more advanced or like more technical gravel, one of the ways that you can get around that is you get a bigger tire, you lower your tire pressures and you, the wheel then is more forgiving for you as an athlete because you don't, you don't have the handling skills. If you're a really confident bike handler, it's like, you know, I've, I've been a big skier my whole life. If you put like a really, really great skier on like a really old tech ski, they can still make it do things that people that don't have the technical skills mm. can't do on even on a good ski. So you get somebody on like a, a, a bigger wheel, like a 700 C wheel, you get them on like a smaller tire with less tread, but they know how to handle the bike and work the bike in like row any row and like how to basically balance themselves. They can get away with so much less underfoot and the right tire pressures because they just have the handling skills. So it really comes to like, there's so much there that, that you have to, think about when you're an athlete, you have to be honest with yourself. Like, what do I know? Can I do from a handling perspective? What is the right tire pressure for me in the terrain? And again, like you, like you say, you go back to this mud situation. I don't care who you are in that race. You are walking that section, right? <laughs> so, you know, you, you, it's, it's just gravels just introduces like so many different things. Um, and just being prepared, like I say, I think it's, it's, it's paramount to, to your success in the day. Well, your point about playing to your own strengths and weaknesses and, and looking at your setup as an individual is something I just saw in a Lucy Charles Barclay video. She has a YouTube yeah. channel. Uh, any pure cyclist listening, this is a triathlete. I'll tell you, it, I've started watching a lot of triathlete content because they just train. Like if you like watching people train, just follow some triathletes. Like they yeah, freaking yeah. train. And it was cool because she went into the wind tunnel and she was very clear about finding the most arrow position for her opposed mm -hmm. to just finding the most arrow position. And the way she put emphasis on that was pretty cool because it is like what you said about your different body types and aerodynamics. It really comes down to the person and the individual. And then even like tire selection for a gravel race, depending on your strengths, one tire might actually be better than another because of your yeah. technical ability. And I've yep. experienced that firsthand. I would say, especially at BWR Arizona, there was, it was like a 50-50 split gravel or road, something around that. But there's a lot of road and all the gravel was basically on single track. And it was like these smooth, but loose technical mountain bike trails. And the way the group dynamics worked were really interesting because, you know, you'd be on the road for 20 miles and you're pace yep. lining with these dudes that are hammering. And, you know, for me, I'm like hanging on for dear life. And then you get into the dirt and my whole background's in downhill racing. So all of a sudden just, I'm like yeah. passing these guys and putting in time. And then guess what? We get back on the road one mile later, the group catches me again or something. Yeah. And you notice these, I mean, even just watching certain athletes corner in a gravel race, you can be like, that guy's a mountain biker. That guy has never spent time on dirt. And you see that throughout the day, both good and bad. And it's part of the kind of the cool thing about the sport too. It's like all these different backgrounds coming together and duking it out. 
Um, so that, that is really something cool to consider about the tire choice, especially. And, uh, so I want to talk about, I guess the last point when I initially said I had a lot to bring up, which was the aero bar thing. I just got to say, there's a lot of arguments against why or why not aero bar should be in there. I think the one that is the most relevant and the one that actually, I, I feel like I could back is, is really just how dangerous it is to ride in groups oh, yeah. with aero bars. And let alone off-road. I think your ability to react to stray rocks, to people sliding, to the technicality of the courses, all that, I think that's enough to to nick some in gravel j- purely for the safety. I, I just don't think anyone can respond well from a weird scenario. Like The chances of going down and having unnecessary crashes and injuries, is, it's not worth it. I agree with you there. The only thing that I would say that if you if you if they are going to let our aero bars be in the race for whatever reason, I think it should be 100% required that the aero bar extension has a break. Right? Yeah. And that's you can, and that takes you can, a lot of extra setup too. You can do it, right? And I Wait, agree so do with you run you. a separate brake housing? How how does that even work? I've never have I even seen that? I don't know. You can't, I mean, there's different ways, like I've seen guys that have done it. So basically you can replace it like with one of your brakes, right? If you know you're going to be there a lot, like a lot of times you can like (laughs) feather your front brake or your rear brake. So you would just have one up there. I don't know if I've ever seen anybody have like a secondary brake. That would be really odd. Um, in theory from a, from a, if you have a mechanical brake, you could do a Y so it's fluid, right? It's just fluids. So you could have like a Y juncture, and so you could basically run the same brake off two levers. That's interesting. It's an interesting idea. They, that's, that's an inner bike idea right there. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right something there, you would see inner bike. I think it's right. So, so yeah. I think again, like I, I think honestly, like you would need, um, you need to have something from a safety perspective in there. I just, I, I don't, I agree with you hundred percent. If you're behind a guy and you're in the TT bars, and he, something happens, I don't risk people's safety because you're trying to save up a little bit of time. I don't think it makes sense. Yeah. And so then let's talk about uh, tire width and rim width. You know, you mentioned on the, on the wheel depth that the air reattaching is what helps improve the aerodynamics, Mm -hmm. like how fast the air reattaches. And so then I, what I've heard, and maybe I heard this number from you, there's like a percentage difference of where it's optimal for the width of your tire to be this percent less than the width of your rim for the rule of one Oh five. Yeah. Can we talk about this a little bit? Yeah, sure. So goodness gracious. Uh, boy, this is a fun one. So the rule of one Oh five was originally coined by uh, a guy named Josh Portner. Um, he was over at zip for a number of years as their head designer, brilliant guy. I've known him for years. Um, love everything that they, he does. He's done. He's got a new company now called Silka. They're doing great things over there. Um, and he came up with this rule called the rule of 105, which basically states that as a percentage, you don't want your wheel and tire combination, like from a, a ratio perspective, to be greater, greater than the rule of 105, right? If you're over there, you start to lose a lot of your aerodynamic benefit. However, I will say this, that when he came up with that, that there weren't a number, really, people really weren't looking at rolling resistance. And so... I always, I mean, I wrote an article on the blog. If people want to like go into more detail about it, like they can totally check it out. Um, in 2015, we went into the wind tunnel with our second generation of wheels. This is after we produced this like crazy algorithm that we talked about that basically 
made the fastest wheels that we've ever seen. Um, I was going in the wind tunnel and I'm thinking, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do for the next generation wheels. Like, I don't know how I'm going to make them faster. Like we just literally solved for the fastest wheels and just out of like pure coincidence, another guy in the, sp- in the space called Tom Anholt, brilliant guy. Um, he's like a rolling resistance, like OG, like he's like a pioneer in the, in the rolling resistance space. If anyone's looking for like tire selections and gravel or road, he's got like this whole chart table. He's, he studied it like crazy smart guy. So he, we've known each other for years and I was, I was coming out of the wind tunnel. We were kind of like broadcasting that we were in the wind tunnel doing this big tire study. And he said to me, he said, Hey man, let's do, um, why don't you send me all your tires? And he goes, I'll run the rolling resistance numbers on them and we can then combine your aero numbers and your rolling resistance numbers and we'll see what the fastest tire is. And I was completely ignorant to it at the time. And I'm like, sure. I don't think it's going to matter in my head. I'm thinking like, it's not going to matter. Rolling resistance. I thought, oh, what does that matter? Well, I was like completely wrong, like completely floored. Rolling resistance is as important as aerodynamics, um, if not more important in a lot of situations. And so what happened was we started seeing at that time, we had designed our wheels around a 23 mil uh, GP 4000 S2 was the tire. And we got the aero results back. We tested 25 mil tires because people wanted to know how aero they were and, the, and they were worse aerodynamically. As soon as you threw in the rolling resistance numbers, the 25 became a faster tire. Hmm. because the benefit from a wider tire from a rolling resistance perspective mattered greatly. And I'm like, holy crap, man. Like this is how we're going to make the next generation of wheels. Like we need to consider both rolling resistance and aerodynamics. It was right around the time we started doing the gravel stuff and the road line all at the same time. And we really looked at, can we make a rim that's, that's going to change the air, the aerodynamic properties, but, and the rolling resistance properties of, of the wheel itself. And so what we did, was we developed this on-road test um, using one of those sensors that I talked about earlier. We kind of reverse engineered the sensor. A lot of times they use both rolling resistance numbers and um, CDA numbers, which is the drag coefficient. And so I went to this guy um, out of Calgary, AeroLab. They were kind of in the beta of this sensor, and there were some companies that were using it for Aero. And I said, I want to get rolling resistance numbers out. And he goes, well, why would you want to do that? So I explained it to him. Anyway, we worked with UNLV. It took 18 months. We developed this on-road testing protocol that basically measure on-road rolling resistance and we proved that by like widening taking getting a wider internal rim width um would lower the rolling resistance so then we took the rim made it as wide as possible within safety standards and then we aero optimized around that rim shape and it was like i mean we saved like two watts per wheel um over the old design and considering both so getting back to the rule 105 when you look at purely look at the rule of 105 and you only look at aerodynamics, it's a hundred percent true. When you add in the, the rolling resistance perspective, it breaks slightly. And I know this because we've done the rolling resistance testing and we've then optimized around it. And because you have the rolling resistance numbers and the arrow numbers, and it's basically solving for that whole system, it breaks it slightly, but you end up with a faster outcome. So the rule of 105 is, is important and it was very important. Today, you have to make sure that you understand the whole system, meaning rolling resistance mm. and aerodynamics. So the other thing that we learned was because of like when we started looking at gravel wheels and, and, and road wheels, the one that really blew me away was our road wheel, is that depth is, is a major component of aerodynamics, but it's a combination of width and depth that you really get the most benefit. So we took a 
90 millimeter wheel, which was our wheel we used to make called our Flow 90. It was 94.7 millimeters deep, super, super deep. We shortened it down to what's called our now Flow 77AS road wheel. So it's like 76.9 millimeters deep. So almost 20 millimeters shallower, but we made it a lot wider and it's faster than the old 90 millimeter wheel. So Wow. So is there, is it hard then to say this rim width with this tire width is the fastest because of the, the rolling resistance dynamic? hundred percent. hundred percent. Like that's why you like, can't just say, oh, you need to run this internal, this external, this tire width and that's the fastest you can't just say like you don't i mean you you can't just say it because you gotta like i go to the wind tunnel i've been the wind tunnel many times and when you look at different tires on different wheels they perform differently they behave differently one thing that blew me away was we make the 77 mil deep wheel right super fast we put a 32 mil tire on it was it was designed around like 28 mils right and then we made our gravel wheel and we'd optimize that around like a gravel tire. And in the wind tunnel, like just for the hell of it, I'm like, I can put a 32 mil road tire on this. I'm going to put it on and just see what it does in the wind tunnel. Now the gravel wheel is 54 millimeters deep, 54.9. The road wheel is 77 millimeters deep. That tire, 32 mil tire on the, the gravel wheel is faster than the 77 mil wheel optimized around a 28 millimeter tire. Because the gravel wheel is wider. Because you, you're now playing with a combination of width and depth, right? This is, that was like the light bulb that went off to me. I, mean, I knew that we could yeah. do certain things. But when you look at, traditionally, when you look at like, a lot of aerodynamics is based on something called NACA profiles. NACA profiles were like wing profiles, like done by like NASA way back in the day. You can like see all these like old like gray videos from wind tunnels. And if you look at a, like a traditional bicycle tire, especially back in the day, like I first started this company, we came up with 23 mil tires as like our design. And that people thought that was like a mountain bike tire back then. We don't (sighs) even look at 23 mil tires anymore. Like they're just, they're so small, but those older (laughs) tires, they're like so pointy that they're like nothing close to a NACA profile. Like they don't even, I mean, they're much, have to be much rounder. So when you start getting these like much wider, like 32 mil tires and you're getting these different shapes, you're getting these more round shapes and you can, you can just get way better aerodynamic performance out of that. So again, if somebody says, oh, I have wide internal rim width on this, on this wheel. Sure. I can, I know from the studies that we did, I'm not saying people don't make wide internal rim width wheels because they do. The reason we did all the testing because I wanted to prove that a wider internal rim width lowered rolling resistance. And we did right? So we make it. So if somebody says, oh, we have wide internal rim width. Well, okay. That's going to help your rolling resistance. Sure. Um, but then you have to ask, well, what tire works best with this wheel? We don't know. Have we tested it in a wind tunnel? Most people don't do wind tunnel testing. They just don't. Um, it's expensive. You need to have a certain level of expertise to actually understand what you're doing in the wind tunnel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen companies that I know use open molds, meaning an open mold is you go over to Asia, there's a factory, they have a bunch of wheels on a wall. You pick one, you put your sticker on it, and you make, and then you have a wheel company. Every mold that we make is proprietary. We design all our own shapes. We cut our own molds. Those are all produced. And when you use an open mold, there's no like engineering behind those wheels. I've talked with so many factories. Do you do any engineering? No, we just come up with random shapes. Okay. So, but what companies will do is they'll then take that wheel and they'll take it to a wind tunnel and test it. Well, it's kind of like backwards, 
right? I mean, yeah. you want to design something up front to make sure that it's aerodynamic. And then when you go to the wind tunnel, you're verifying. You're not just pulling some random shape out and saying, okay, well, we're going to put this in the wind tunnel. You're really limiting your performance when you do that. There's very few companies that actually design rim shapes from the ground up. We're one of them. Um, and there's that, a few others. That That is really wild. And I have a, okay, so it's funny to me to ask this very simple question uh, after everything that you just said, but I'm still confused on the importance of internal rim width versus external rim width. And so yeah. what I had thought in my head was that uh, the external rim width mattered more for the aerodynamics because that's what's exposed to the wind. But now what yes. it sounds like is the internal rim width, that dictates the real width of the tire volume yeah. and the tire size. So like when I, okay, the first time I noticed this was when I actually got my, my new tarmac and it's got revolve wheels and it comes with a 26 mil tire. And I look down and I'm, I'm pretty sure the external rim width on these wheels is like 31 mils. Yeah. And I look down and I'm like, dude, my, my rim is wider than my tire. <laughs> like, yeah. whoa, is this wrong? Like what's going on here? And essentially the tire is hooked to the internal rim with yes. for the shape of the tire. And that external width is essentially, I mean, like, like what's the importance of that in, in everything well, that you just talked I mean, about? Cause I didn't that, hear you mention it. I mean, there's a great, that's a great question. So years ago we took I was 20 some tires and we basically went through PSI ranges on each tire on multiple different internal rim widths. And we took thousands and thousands of caliper measurements. So, and what I did is I took all the data and then I graphed it. So when you look at when the internal rim width of a wheel gets wider, your tire from a casing perspective, meaning that basically the, either the width of the tire. So like from like brake track to brake track, or if it's not a rim brake wheel from left side of the wheel, the right side of the wheel gets wider, but there's also something called the height, basically where the crown of the tire, the top of the tire is. My thought was that as you increase the width of the tire in a wider internal rim width, that you would change the shape of the, of the casing in two ways. It would get wider and it would get, it would get shorter. So basically yeah. it would compress at the top. That makes sense. Height does not change. It is like flat. The, the, the height measurement is generally always the same. So what you're doing is you're, is you're, you're even since the height is the same, you're just getting this wider shape, right? That definitely changes your aerodynamics. So you're getting a different shape tire. And anytime the shape of something changes, you're changing the aerodynamic properties of it. So when something gets wider, I'm talking, I was talking earlier about like the NACA profile. Mm -hmm. So that NACA profile is going to change and you want more of a bulbous shape out there. The issue is, is that if you have such a big tire, it's, we, I call it like the lollipop effect. If you think of like a lollipop on a stick, you've got a stick and you've got this big round lollipop on the top. You don't want your rim to be that stick because by the time the airflow moves around that like round lollipop shape, there's this giant void down here that just, there's no way the air is connecting to, right? Mm. Look at old, like traditional rims. They used to be V's. You would cut like a profile of them, meaning like you cut the rim in half and it was just like this V shape. All the goal was just to make it super deep. They were horrible handling in the wind. Aerodynamically now, they're just like horrific. Um, and so that's really back in like, you know, late, right when we were starting, we were starting to say, we want this attachment concept to happen. And we want to, we want to have like this smooth transition from tire to rim, right? So 
again, I would want to test everything. I've been in the yeah. wind tunnel so many times that I'm like, oh, I know this is going to, I think this is going to happen. And I'm like a hundred percent wrong, like just <laughs> wrong. So when you look down at your wheel and you see like excessive rim, probably not the best, you know, and it's not the best for one of two reasons. Number one, mm. it could be because the aerodynamics aren't the best, but getting to your second question is how does the internal rim width matter? The internal rim width is going to matter because the wider we can make the tire, the lower the rolling resistance we're going to get, right? So if you have a low uh, or a wider tire, like you said, you have 26s, we bumped you up to 28, your rolling resistance is immediately going to drop. And the reason for that is, quick example, think of you've got a certain amount of tire pressure in your, in your wheel. I've done this. I've stamped it out like on a stamp pad. It looks pretty cool. And you put like ink on the bottom of your tire. When you sit on the bike, there's going to be a compression. It's called a contact patch. When you have a narrow tire, your weight is dispersed over that narrow tire. And so you get this contact patch that is really long and it's got sort of like this little width to it. The wider your tire gets, right? That contact patch gets shorter, but it gets wider. Oh my gosh, dude. I swear I have wondered this because I have not considered the way the contact patch would move, I guess, in a forward to back type pattern because i've always thought just on the width and i'm like how could a wider tire have less contact how like make this make sense and i've never had someone explain it like that it's, that's it's that's, it's all that's about, hilarious actually yeah it's all about surface area right so yeah you've got you've got 150 pounds on a bike well the surface area is going to be the same but we're making it wider so if we make it wider we have to naturally make it shorter that's right? crazy rolling, oh my gosh resistance. I don't, you know when you hear something and you're like I am an idiot for not yeah. even just like considering that. <laughs> Dude, and, that's how I feel right now. And, and rolling resistance is all about, it's something called a hysteresis effect, but the simple way to think about it, put a set of skis on your feet, right? And you try to, you try to like roll forward on your feet. That's like that long contact patch. It's so difficult to get enough momentum, much energy to move over those skis. Take your skis off, stand on your feet, and somebody comes up and pushes you from behind you fall over really easily, mm -hmm. right? So every time your tire is rolling and that contact patch is basically shifting under the, under the wheel with a shorter contact patch, it's got less momentum, less of a moment to overcome. That's part of the rolling resistance equation. The other part is, and I'll say this really quick, hysteresis effect. There's a, there is certain tires that have really good rolling resistance because as the tire deforms in the front of that contact patch as you're rolling, there's a loss of energy, right? There's heat, there's sound, and, and that basically tr is lost in the tire. As the tire retakes its shape on the back, so basically the contact patch comes back out because it, it's leaving the, the ground, there's, there's a loss in there. And that loss is, is absorbed in the heat and the sound we're talking about. So there's not a perfect rebound. So that's why you want a tire that has a great or rolling resistance properties because it allows you to um, save rolling resistance. So those two things are really the, the, the main components you need to consider when you're picking a tire. Width, well, contact patch, and all that other stuff. Oh, man. I mean, that's, that's an awesome little nugget that I definitely won't forget. That and also the, even the chain oscillation and the pulley wheels – Mm -hmm. Um, besides all the stuff we learned today, those are like those two concrete, simple things. I was like, Oh, that's so wild. And yeah. so I guess my last question for you would be how wide is too wide on the road bike? 
because I have, I still have those, uh, I think they're 25 internal, 31 external, or maybe 26 internal. I can't quite remember, but um, I had on previous bikes ran 28 mil tires, which I really liked. 26 feels sketchy to me. Uh, and then I went up to a 30 and I also went tubeless at that time. And I was like, oh, this is, this is even better. Yeah. And so I recently put on 32 mil tires for the Everest Rome ride that I did, uh, just to have, you know, a little bit more of a comfortable ride. And I put on like a more robust sidewall and everything like that. Uh, but I have left those tires on and I'm like, man, it just, I, I don't know if it's mental and I'm just thinking it's feels slow or whatever it is now that I'm back on my normal setup without all the bags on it. And I'm actually considering speed. Uh, but I also realized, oh, the tire is now actually wider than the rim itself. And those thirties were just under it, which almost sounds like maybe the perfect shape or the ideal shape, uh, non considering the rolling resistance. Uh, and then I just wonder, I'm like, I've been wanting to try a 32 mil tire for a while. Cause every time I've gone up in width and volume, it's felt better. But this is the first time I'm like, ooh, I don't think I'd want to go more than this. Um, I'm sure you put some thought into it, but what's your internal rim width, dude? I actually don't know off the top of my head. It's the so, stock Rovals that come on the tarmac. I know the external is 31, and I think it's like 25 or 26. If you're 25, 32 is going to be fast. And I'm gonna I'm gonna touch on something you said. You said it feels slower. Now this is like I can't. This, I don't well, know if it on. feels slower, dude. I don't know. <laughs> Here's the thing I got to say to you. So I like have this conversation a lot. Um, if you've ever been in a super old car, like an old beater, right? And you go down the highway and you're going hundred miles an hour. You know, you're going hundred miles an hour. You probably think you're going 200 miles an hour and you think you're going to die. And the reason yeah. for that is, is because there's so much vibration happening that your body, bodies naturally sense the brain senses vibration as speed. Okay. If you go down the same road in a tuned sports car and you're going hundred miles an hour, you think you're doing 60. You're not afraid. Everything feels good, right? Cause you don't, you don't perceive the speed. You feel like you, you could take your hands off the steering wheel. I totally know you, what you mean. You could sleep, yeah. right? No big deal. The same thing happens when you go to bike, but we have to reverse it. When you have a high tire pressure, right? Cause tire pressure being too high, especially on the road, produces too much vibration, which means you're bouncing up and down, down the road. And those watts that are supposed to be moving you forward are now moving you up and down, wasting mass amounts of energy, right? Huge issues. Every PSI that you're over on PSI, you're losing a watt. You're 10 PSI over, you're, bas you're wasting 10 watts. Big deal. No way. 100%. It's that much? Yes. It's why we made this new product called the air gauge. And it's like most pumps too, plus or minus nine PSI. You show your, your pump shows you it's hundred PSI could be 109. You have no idea what your pump is giving you. Anyway. You will be proud of me. I always follow up with the digital gauge. There you go. Make sure your dig digital gauge is really accurate though, because most of them are not. However, when you're going down the road now and your PSI and you have a higher PSI and you start to get that vibration, your body feels like you're going faster. Every time you put somebody in a bike, you get them on a wire tire and you lower their tire pressure. It's smooth. And the first thing they come back and say is it feels so much slower. Test it. They're faster every time. Wow. Okay. So oh, dude, that's a total mic drop. I want to finish the pod for you there, but yeah. then what's the, what's too wide? Come on. I know there's something that's too wide. Well, I mean, in road right now, we're kind of, we're kind of at like the, the 32 
like I don't really know many people making anything wider than 32 road. I, like I say, if I, now I go on the road, like I don't use our road wheels anymore. I use our gravel wheels, the G 700, and I put a 32 mil road tire on it. It's awesome. And it's really fast. So 32, man, I don't think you can get too wide with the right wheel. You can't get too wide. If you've got an older wheel. Yeah. You're, you're starting to hurt yourself aerodynamically too much for that rolling resistance to, to matter. But when you got a wide internal rim wind, like 25 mils or something like that, 32 is great. Safety wise though, like if you're less, like all our road wheels are, are at 21 mils because from a safety perspective, we have to maintain certain safety things. Cause when you get in a 28 mm. mil tire, you can't put it on 25 mil. It's too wide. You can give blow off risks, right? Same with hooks and hookless. All this movement to hookless is great. Really it's, it's about cost, but it's still not safe. And we see blow offs all the time with hookless. So make sure you got a hook on your rim too especially in road, even mm. gravel for a lot of situations. So then essentially the width would come down to, okay, you have a, a 50 mil tire on, maybe the rolling resistance is incredible and all that, but now there's so much material here. It's just a heavier, slower wheel. Is it heavier, like slower? It, your aerodynamics suck. Um, yeah. Okay. So like there is a point you're saying like 50, oh, yeah. there's no chance we're going to 50. No, and again, and again, most okay. wheel companies, we are limited to what the bike gives us. Yeah. If I, if Good I could point. make a, a tri wheel that was 32, like with our, like the same dimensions around 32 mil tires, I'd make it all day long. I'd have like super huge wide tri wheels, but they don't fit tri bikes. Right. Oh, really? So, is, is that no. just because there's not as many updated tri bikes or are they still yeah. all running smaller? I mean, yeah. a lot of them are like, especially you go to the rim brake world, like you can't open rim brakes super wide, but yeah. I can make a 38 mil wheel and like do some really cool stuff with some super fancy tires. I'm sure we can make mm -hmm. something really fast, but we're limited, right? We have to, we have to play within the constraints, which is why when we went to gravel, like this is awesome. You look at these gravel bikes. They get these mm -hmm. big giant stays up front or in the, in the rear and you get the big giant fork and the, and the, we, we made this super awesome wheel. It's fast. That's super it's, cool. Which again shows why it's able to make something faster than a road world because we were given this playground that we could do anything we wanted with. Dude, well, I'm blown away. I mean, I, I really am stoked that you came on the podcast today. Uh, honestly, that was just a super fun conversation for me, but I, like I said, <laughs> I learned a ton. So thanks for dropping cool. some knowledge, man. Now yeah, man. I'm going to make sure to leave your website and your podcast link along with your Instagram in the description, but where else could people find you? Uh, flow FLO. So no W and flow all around airflow was when we started the company. So flow cycling, flow cycling.com. You can find us there or on Instagram, um, Facebook. I've got a podcast called faster cycling. So, I mean, we cover, we have experts. I mean, we had you on like a couple weeks ago, man, and you dropped all your knowledge on us, but we interview people like number of different doctors for like medical stuff, nutritionists, coaches, um, all like gear tech guys like me. Um, just to make you faster. So check us out there too. Absolutely. Well, thanks again. And I'm sure I'll be following up with some very, very specific questions about my own setup. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Cool. I hope you guys love that conversation with John. I'll tell you, I feel so fortunate to be able to sit down with an expert like that and just rattle off any question I have that come, comes across my mind. Uh, and in truth, I did prepare some questions because I don't want to blow an opportunity like that, but I learned a ton. And what's even better is that we can record it and hopefully you can learn as well. So 
Hope you love the episode. We are going to shift gears now to weekly thoughts. And I got to tell you about some straight up bad luck. But before we get into my heart of gold experience, uh, or lack thereof, heart of gold experience, I want to tell you about a couple of things that are coming up. Uh, and they're on the top of my mind right now, which is actually why I need to keep this somewhat brief. Now, I have Zach Youngberg, my videographer from Everest Rome, who also filmed Double Everest, coming to my house to wrap up some commentary for the film. We are going to be launching this thing on November 3rd on YouTube. This is a Friday, and it's plenty of time for us to do it right, and that's why we're extending it. Initially, I wanted it before Halloween, but we're going to push it right after and make sure that we don't have to rush. So we're doing commentary for that. He's going to be showing up. And then my wife's cutting his hair. There's a fun fact for you. And then <laughs> I'm going to be diving into a couple things today. So we're working out details for the Thank Ride. If you're local, this is the Thanksgiving morning ride. Giving my buddy Chaz Halbert a call. We've gotten the green light from Poor Choice. We have some other things that we're going to try and tweak to just make it better and better and better. But I can't wait for the morning of Thanksgiving. Uh, and then I'm looking into my kits because we have more proofs coming in from all the separate items, jackets, vests. We have uh, neck gaiters, full-length bib, bib thermals, short-sleeve, long-sleeve. Oh, and a, and a skin suit, like the long-awaited skin suit. People have been asking for this, and I've actually wanted one myself, and it's coming. So I'm really pumped on this dark winter design of the Geo, basically topography that we put out this summer. And if you're not familiar of what that looks like, sign up for my newsletter at the very top of the website. If you're not logged in, it'll just say join our newsletter. It's free and you'll get updates on that and when to order because the order window will be coming soon. So stay tuned for that. And then we're going to talk about jury duty, which I just got dropped, uh, which just got dropped on me. So that's coming up later, but let's talk of heart of gold right now. I came into this event which is really like the most local gravel race I have. I mean, it's less than an hour drive, and I did it last year and had an absolute blast. So I, I really wanted to be there, but the problem was I'm still not recovered from the Everest Roam, which is kind of crazy to say because I thought I'd bounce back a little faster than my double Everest just with all the additional volume that I've done over the last year and also with the experience of the double Everest. But what I remember is that Two weeks after Double Everest, I felt normal. Three weeks, I felt good. Four weeks, so a full month after it, I was actually hitting some power PRs and almost like I got a fitness gain from it, but it really took that long. Now, I have looked back and talked over what I did training-wise the week after Double Everest versus the Everest Rome, which I just completed, but I didn't have any other health metrics like HRV or heart rate in general. Uh, to look back and refer on because, dude, it has been a roller coaster since I've done Everest Rome. So coming into Heart of Gold, I knew two weeks was going to be pushing it, but I wasn't sure if I'd be ready to race or not. So I've basically been testing myself over the last week with a little bit of intensity to see how my body would handle it. And to give you an example, I got my HRV score and my heart rate back to normal early last week. So this is like a week and a half after the Everest Rome. And so I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to push a little bit of intensity. Well, I go out on a mountain bike ride, two hours, kind of a tempo thresholdy burst here and there. Uh, and, you know, it was a normal intensity ride for two hours, but afterward I felt pretty fried. I felt like I had almost a low grade fever and it almost felt like, I don't want to say uh, heat exhaustion, but it kind of had that same feeling where your head gets just hot and kind of groggy 
and you just feel tired, like you want to take a nap. That's the best way I can describe it. And so I felt that way. And then the next morning, I looked at my my heart rate and my HRV, and my training readiness score was down to an 11, which, I mean, that's like after unbound, like how bad it is from a two-hour ride. Uh, and I had, I, I tried to have good sleep, but my resting heart rate was in the 40s, or I think it's like, I think it was 40 or maybe even 42, which is pretty high for me to be honest. And then I just felt horrible. And I was like, oh my gosh, that little bit of intensity tanked me. And this race is in a couple of days. Like if I go do this race, even if I'm feeling better by then, there's a really good chance I'm just going to dig myself deeper in a hole. And I don't want to do that because at the end of October, I'm supposed to go to a couple events. There's the bovine classic, which is a gravel race. And there's also the Phil's Fonda, which is what I was leaning towards down in Malibu. And then I had another podcast thing lined up for the following day in Newport, kind of unrelated to my business, but something I personally really wanted to do. And then I got served jury duty for October 30th, the same day as Phil's Cookie Fondo, or the day, it would be the day after. But I'm like, so do I not go to jury duty or do I not do that now? I don't know. I'm going to figure that out later. I'm not going to stress about it. Uh, but I am kind of dealing with that. Long story short, I knew regardless of jury duty, I wanted to feel good at the end of the month and hopefully feel like I got some fitness gain from the Everest Rome itself. So pushing myself at the heart of goal this last weekend just didn't feel like the right call, but I also wanted to be there. And I, I don't know, just like be a part of the event. I have local dialed fin members out there racing it. I had a lot of fun there last year. Again, it's less than an hour drive. I know the guys who put it on. And so basically I talked myself into going, but not racing, which is a really weird move. You know, I'm competitive enough and raced seriously for long enough that I've never actually done a race at that capacity because even me just going out and doing my best and having fun is me doing my best. Like it means I'm going to ride as hard as I can. And there's less stress. Do I care about a specific result as much? Definitely not, but I'm still going to go out and just try my hardest. So I was like, do I feel comfortable even like going out and not racing hard? Like it was almost this ego thing where I was like, no, if I can't go out there and like smash that, I'm not going to even go at all. And I'm sure a lot of you guys can relate to that. And I'll be honest, would I have traveled across the country or jumped on an airplane or done a day's worth of driving for a race at this capacity? Most likely not. But because it's local, everything lined up where I was like, you know what, I'm going to go, I'm going to sign up, support the event, it goes to a great cause, I'm going to not even put my number plate on and still use the aid stations and, and do it that way. Because the second the number plate goes on and I have my timing chip, if I feel good all of a sudden, who knows what I'm going to do? I don't trust myself. So that was my decision. I'm going to go be a part of the event, get some good content, be there with the community and have fun riding my bike but not bring the intensity that could put me in a hole because I'm going to ride that day no matter what. So it seemed like a really good plan. And I made that decision the day before, signed up, wake up at 5 a.m. the next morning, head out there, get there on time. I'm bumping into people I see. Shout out to Sarah for winning her age group and meeting her for the first time, Dollar fan member who's been crushing it. And, and like that kind of thing was me feeling like, okay, this was the right call. I'm supposed to be here. This is great. So I put my kid on. I roll up to the start five minutes before it's about to take off. They're already singing the national anthem. And I do that because, again, I'm not stressing about like start position. I'm just going to roll with the group. Well, as I get up to the start, I go to shift down and I realize my shifter battery was dead. 
And I was like, no way. Okay, don't panic. It's not a big deal. You've done this before. You can take the the uh, battery out of your heart rate monitor, put it in your shifter. It's a quick swap. Let's bust it out. So there's a mechanic there. I just turned, rode right over the, to him and basically said, hey, can you swap my shifter battery? He throws my bike in the rack. I'm taking my heart rate monitor off. <laughs> They're already getting ready to go. And then I noticed he's working on these little bolts on my on my lever and I was like, man, I don't remember having to take those bolts off. And it had been over a year since I had actually replaced my shifter battery. Uh, and the time I did it before or between then was before Unbound. So I had fresh batteries before Unbound, you know, just a few months back. And that's honestly like a higher frequency at which you would probably need to change them anyway. So this felt like a really random kind of thing. But I had personally changed it over a year ago. And so I kind of forgot where it was. The race is going on, the mechanic's working on something, taking these bolts off that kind of don't seem like they should be coming off. And pretty soon he's like, man, I don't have the right tool for this. And I'm like, no way. And it's just blowing like over my head the fact that I do know how to do this. And it's really simple. And it's crazy because all of a sudden they count down, the race takes off. I'm standing there with my heart rate monitor in my hand, bike in the stand. Mechanics look at me like, dude, I don't think I have the right thing to fix this. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm not, I'm not starting. Am I going to even ride today? So it gets to the point where I'm like, okay, I could probably catch up to the group. Let's spend a couple more minutes on this. And for whatever reason, I I think, and I've talked to the mechanic after the fact, he was like, dude, I blew it. We could have, we, we should have been fixing this really simply. It's a quarter turn. It's at a different spot in the lever. I don't, he's like, I know this, but I don't know if it was because it was early or the pressure of the race. And that's the th- same thing I thought was, why didn't I remember this? And part of me didn't think to question the mechanic, but again, I should have known, you know? <laughs> so it was just one of those moments where it's a cluster and you make a bad decision. And then pretty soon I'm driving home <laughs> and I'm like, wow, I'm really not riding this race. Everyone's gone from the venue. You know, I've never been at a gravel race when the race leaves. It's a freaking ghost town. It's just, everyone's gone, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I called my buddy Cody Kaiser. This happened to him at a race earlier this year. So I was like, dude, you're never going to believe what happened. He's like, what do you mean you didn't have the right tool? He's like, you can do it with like a pocket knife or, or a quarter. It's like this little coin turn. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're right. And that's when I felt like an absolute idiot. And I had an hour drive home to think about it. So I didn't even really want to bring it up, but because... I had announced I was going to be there. I had people asking where I was like after the race. I was like, oh, dude, here we go. I have to try and talk about what happened, even though it's such a cluster. Um, So thankfully, I can at least explain myself here a little bit. It was just this weird scenario and bad luck on a day where I didn't really plan on racing anyways. So part of me just feels like I wasn't meant to ride at that race that day, which I'm totally okay on. And basically, once I knew I wasn't going to be doing it, I... I just changed my plan for the day. I was like, all right, I was missing my grandma's birthday party to be at this race. <laughs> so I'm going to go to that now. And if I get home by this time, I can do an hour trainer ride beforehand. So I'm totally changing today's expectations. I'm going to go home. I'm going to get an hour of sweet spot in on the trainer. I'm going to watch the tour of Lombardia, which was amazing. And I'm going to go to my grandma's birthday party. And you know what? That's what I did. And it ended up being an awesome freaking day. It was super frustrating but it ended up being really great. And what's even better is that during that trainer ride, it was funny. I had a little bit of intensity. You know, we're talking about, I think, 20 minutes total at uh, just over uh, my FTP. 
And so and that was within the one hour. So after it, I remember being like, you know, that was a little bit of intensity that didn't feel like it dug me deeper into a hole. Like I felt like my body kind of like a, adapted to it or it just handled it well. And I was like, okay, maybe I'm really hitting that two week stride of feeling like myself again. And what's cool is that the following day I went for a sunset road ride. Like I brought my lights, clear lenses. It was actually super fun, but it was also one of those days I never thought I'd be able to leave for a ride because like uh, my wife was working. I had the kids all day. I'm like taking them around town. We're doing church. We're doing the whole thing. And I'm doing it solo with my three kids, which are like, it's like taking three animals from the zoo, like with no type of containment out into the public. And then you just open the car door and you just see what happens. You don't know which way they're going. I, I don't know. Like we're in line at Chipotle and the kids are running laps around this little aisle thing in Chipotle. And I can tell it's annoying people. And I just look at them. I'm like, I, what do you want me to do? <laughs> Is that a bad dad move? I can yell and scream, but there's three of them and there's one of me. So I can only hold them for so long. All right. We're going to need some team support here. I'm going to need you guys to work with me. I know you didn't ask for this today when you came to Chipotle all hungover at 11 a.m., you know, from whatever you did last night. But I'm going to need you to help me with these kids. <laughs> That's pretty much me. So anyways, I that was a talk about a tangent. I end up going on my road ride finally, and you know what? I felt great. Uh, it was the first ride I've gone on where I felt like I could push, and it was nice because even though that ride was later in the day, my sleep that night, HRV, heart rate, everything was was really good. And because I went for a late ride, I ended up getting a sick little KOM on the bike trail because it was dark enough to where people weren't really on it. There was no wind, which there usually is a slight headwind the way I came. And I had just enough light to see and to absolutely smash uh, because I felt good. I just like, I had like that pent up energy, man. I just wanted to go. So yeah, it ended up being a really good ride. And to be honest, I think I'm ready to take on pretty normal intensity again, but I don't expect myself to feel any real fitness gain for another week or two. And we'll see if it happens, but either way, I'm just kind of relieved that I feel like things are coming back together um, because the recovery after a 24-hour ride like that is really nuts, you know. Um, besides the energy waves that I talked about and how even a minor ride can really, really dig yourself into a hole, I've noticed things like food cravings have been really weird lately. So, for example, after the Everest Roam, I told myself the next few days, especially in the week after, just eat what you want, sleep as much as you can, don't like, don't stress about anything. And I made sure the house was stocked up. Like I had two pints of Ben and Jerry's. I had uh, red velvet Oreos, which are the best Oreos on the planet. I would take this one to the grave. Those That is the best flavored Oreo outside of a traditional double stuff, uh, period. And sorry, I told you that if you didn't know about them. They're, they're incredible. So I had stuff like that around the house and I was eating it daily. And so what I realized was, now, after the, the Rome, I've had plenty of calories because for the first three days, you're, you kind of are just eating whatever and you feel like your body just sucks it up. And to be honest, that's a really great feeling. <laughs> like there's almost, I think any endurance athlete can uh, agree with the fact that when you go for a proper feast and you're just crushing calories and you do it at a time where your body wants it and it, to be honest, it's probably the best thing you can do for your body. It's like the best feeling. I don't want to say I feel food guilt, but I definitely overeat. I have horrible habits from 
uh, my past I'm still trying to get over. So there are times where I'm like, yo, you, you, you should not have done that. And, and I think that's okay. But when you're after something like that, you can send it and it just feels so good. So I, I enjoyed that for the first few days. And I noticed though, going into that next week, I still had some of that junk food in the house. And it was weird because I had so many more cravings than I normally have because I've really cut out dessert for a large part. Uh, you know, what I do now is like, I'll have peanut butter and jelly on rice cakes or some chocolate milk, or, you know, I will have like bites of dessert here and there, but it's so much smaller and so much like so few and far between what I used to do, which is like, dude, I don't know, like legit desserts every single night and, and drinking and, and all sorts of stuff. So my alcohol and dessert consumption has gone down a ton. But after multiple days of dessert, a little bit of alcohol, not very much, but I noticed the cravings for it every single night were so much higher for the week after that. So even up until the last few days, every night after dinner, I'm, I'm like basically rubbing my palms together, like where are these Oreos at? Like it was crazy. I haven't had cravings for food like that in a while. And it just reminded me that if you do indulge after something like this, which I could say that you deserve, just be aware that a lot of times getting that habit back into your day is going to be painful when you want to pull it back and you're not ready for it anymore. So it, it, it's crazy just how fast that habit will reestablish itself and you're going to have to work hard again to get rid of it. And I noticed that because I would say a week after the Everstrom, my weight wasn't out of control, but I just felt inflamed. I was starting to feel kind of gross and I was like, dude, I need to like clean up my diet <laughs> because I have extended this too far. And it actually got me pretty fired up for the uh, Dialed Health Shred in January. Uh, even in the last few days, I've gotten back to no desserts, uh, stopping eating multiple hours before bed, just having some tea or like a, a sleep supplement, like peak sleep. And I was actually trying Pillar um, just to like test it out versus BPN stuff. And so yeah, I've been kind of back in my normal rhythm. My my sleep is way better and my body's starting to handle the workouts again. But yeah, it's been a couple weeks and it's been an interesting experience. So that's pretty much it. We're uh, going to roll into the back half of this month. I have a separate idea of what I'm going to do at the end of the year based on the jury duty situation. Uh, because again, I don't, I don't want to postpone it and have it pop up on a weekend that's way more important. Uh, and I also have some other ideas. So it, it'll be interesting to see what the end of the month looks like. But I think regardless, I really, really want to focus on nailing the work on the website specifically. I've done so many cool events and we have the Everest Rome video coming out early November. It may not be as necessary as, as I thought to get out to another event um, just to kind of round out the year. So we'll see. Uh, I'm going to play that by year. But regardless, I just want to thank everybody who uh, are new members to the website. It's been a really exciting month for Dialed Health, and we've had a ton of growth since appearance on certain podcasts. And you know, I'm trying to handle it the best way I can. <laughs> it's been it's been funny because even before this last month, I felt like I was at the best place I've ever been with communications. And then I got a volume of new inquiries that totally blew that out of the water. Like my onboarding process was not ready to handle it, and it's like a good problem to have, but you hate not following up with people. Uh, which is unfortunately the truth. And yeah, I'm trying to resolve that the best way I can. It's like, how do you jump on today's work, but
but also make sure this doesn't happen again in the future. It's like, which one do you prioritize? <laughs> and so I, I think the truth is you kind of do a little bit of both until, I don't know, you have a light at the end of the tunnel. I, I don't really know, but yeah, I'm not stressing about it. You guys stuff is going really well. And, uh, I guess I'm not stressing about it in the sense that I'm not going to, you know, let it overshadow the, the, the good success, but man, I hate not getting back to people because when I have a good back and forth with a member about their training experience and help them through the process, it's one of the most rewarding things ever. Um, I just got an email about a member doing her first pull up. It was just, it's just, I love that stuff. So anyways, I hope you guys crush your training this week. I'm about to get into some commentary filming for the Everest Rome, and I will plan on catching up with you guys next week here on the podcast. So until then, start moving forward.